Major General Ambrose Burnside was going to blow some stuff up. He was on top of the world in 1862. He had been promoted to Major General after winning the Battles of Roanoke Island and New Bern, the first significant Union victories in the East. Eight months later, he was given command of the Army of the Potomac after President Abraham Lincoln fired George McClellan, the young Napoleon. Burnside had invented a gun that was named after him, the Burnside Carbine, and sported truly magnificent sideburns, also named for him, even though he looked a bit like a walrus in a uniform. Burnside didn't want overall command of the Union armies because of his loyalty to McClellan and his lack of military experience. He learned that the command would go to General Joseph Hooker if he declined, which changed his mind. Ambrose Burnside really didn't like Joe Hooker. So he took charge of the Army of the Potomac, knowing full well what the commander-in-chief wanted, for him to take the fight south to the Confederacy. He planned an assault on the Confederate capital at Richmond, which definitely qualified as taking the fight to the enemy. Lincoln, frustrated by Union losses and McClellan's seeming inability to press forward with the large and well-equipped army the president had gotten for him, approved the plan despite his doubts that it would work. Lincoln needed a significant victory in order to maintain public support for his administration in the face of consistent Southern victories. No pressure, Ambrose. The attack, known as the Battle of Fredericksburg, was a disaster. Bureaucratic slowdowns delayed vital supplies, and Burnside reacted slowly to changing events on the battlefield. Robert E. Lee did not, moving his forces rapidly from defense to offense, attacking the slow-moving Union Army before it could get its act together. The Union armies withdrew, having suffered twice the casualties as the Confederates. Lincoln was called a weak man, too weak for the occasion, and those fool or traitor generals are wasting time and yet more precious blood in indecisive battles and delays. The governor of Pennsylvania described the battle to the president as a butchery, which drove Lincoln to a state of nervous excitement bordering on insanity. Lincoln said, if there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. Burnside was relieved of command a month later and replaced by his nemesis, Joseph Hooker. Ambrose Burnside really didn't like Joe Hooker. Each general ended up with something named after them, by the way. Burnside thought his was better, but hookers were more popular. Plus, it took a long time to grow really bushy sideburns. Joe Hooker and Ambrose Burnside were never going to see eye to eye. It was all downhill for him from there. Burnside led troops at the Battles of the Wilderness and Spotsylvania Courthouse in a manner described as reluctant. He ended up at the Siege of Petersburg, which was the aftermath of General Grant's failed attempt to defeat Lee in a pitched decisive battle. Both sides dug trenches and waited. Grant knew his opponent had lost men he could not replace and that supplies were running low. But Lee was clever, and Grant worried that the more time Lee had to strategize, the more likely it was that he might escape. The battles leading up to the siege were bloody and costly for the North, and Grant was called a butcher for his apparent willingness to sacrifice his men in inconclusive battles. General Grant had his own experience at the Siege of Vicksburg to draw upon, where he had learned that sieges were expensive and bad for morale. Like Ambrose Burnside, Ulysses Grant needed something big to turn things around. Colonel Henry Pleasance, a mining engineer from Pennsylvania, hatched a plan where he would dig a long shaft under the Confederate trenches, pack it with gunpowder, and blow the whole thing sky high. This would open a massive hole in the southern defenses that troops could pour through and attack. This sounded great to Burnside, and he approved the plan. General Grant was also on board, though he later wrote that he saw it as a mere way to keep the men occupied. 
This lack of enthusiasm from the chain of command meant that Colonel Pleasance had to forage for his own materials, demolishing a bridge and an old mill to acquire the wooden supports he needed for the tunnel. He rigged an ingenious air exchange system that kept fresh air in the tunnel where the men were digging. He kept a fire burning near the start of the tunnel that drew fresh air in and stale air out by way of the chimney effect. The men hauled earth out of the tunnel using cracker boxes that had been fitted with handles. The mine shaft was 511 feet long and more than 50 feet deep, with hidden ventilation shafts which helped avoid detection and countermeasures by the Confederates, who had heard rumors about the plan. General Lee refused to believe it for a couple of weeks before ordering sluggish and uncoordinated countermining operations that were unable to discover the tunnel. Burnside had trained a division of United States Colored Troops under General Edward Ferrero to lead the attack into the crater that would result from the explosion. The two brigades would go around the crater and be the spearhead of the assault on Petersburg. General Meade, Burnside's commander, vetoed the use of colored troops because of repercussions in the north if the attack failed and it was believed that black soldiers had been sacrificed. Burnside protested to Grant, who sided with Meade. General Burnside tried to get volunteers to take the duty, but none were forthcoming, so he selected a white division by drawing lots. General James Ledley's 1st Division drew the short straw. Ledley failed to brief or train his men and was reported to be drunk behind the lines when the battle started. The plan was to detonate the gunpowder between 3 and 3.45 a.m. on the morning of July 30, 1864. Due to the poor quality of the fuses they had been given, the explosion didn't happen on time. Two volunteers went forward into the mine and found that the fuse needed to be re-spliced. They tried again and the gunpowder finally went off at 4.44 a.m. in a massive explosion that created a crater 170 feet long, 120 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. The Confederates, stunned by the blast, did not react for at least 15 minutes. Neither did the Yankees. Ludley's division, its command staff back behind the lines and drunk off its posterior, waited 10 minutes before attacking. And instead of going around the crater, they went straight into it, thinking it would be a great rifle pit. Which it was, but for the South. The Confederates regrouped at the top of the crater and fired down into it, wiping out the Union soldiers stuck at the bottom. Confederate General William Mahone called it a turkey shoot. Burnside, watching his last chance at redemption disappear into a deep hole, ordered General Ferrero's colored troops forward, but the Confederate fire forced them down the center of the crater instead of around the sides. They broke through anyway and pushed the Confederates back, but a counterattack drove the Union soldiers back to their own lines. Casualties on the Union side were, in what was becoming tragically typical for Burnside, more than double that of the Confederates. Most of the brunt was borne by the colored troops. General Meade brought charges against Burnside, and a court of inquiry censored him and General Ledley, who was drunk during the fighting, as well as General Ferrero, who was also reported to be in his cups. General Meade, surprisingly enough, neglected to mention his own role in the disaster. General Burnside was relieved of command two weeks later. He met with President Lincoln and General Grant in December, offering to resign, but they asked him to remain in the service. After the meeting, though, Burnside wrote that he was not informed of any duty upon which I am to be placed. He never went back to active duty and resigned his commission the week after Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. The Congressional Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War exonerated Burnside in 1865 and censured Meade for changing the plan of attack at the last minute. General Grant testified to the committee that he believed that if the colored troops had been used, 
the battle would have been won. But if it had failed, it would then be said, and very properly, that we were shoving these people ahead to get killed because we did not care anything about them. But that could not be said if we put white troops in front. Even though the Battle of the Crater was technically a Confederate victory, it did not end the stalemate. Both sides ended up in the same relative entrenched positions where they had started. Burnside's reputation only partially recovered after the congressional investigation. He went on to run a number of railroads after the war. He was elected to three terms as governor of Rhode Island and was the first president of the National Rifle Association. While on a visit to Europe in 1870, he took a crack at mediating the Franco-Prussian War, which did not work. He was elected to the United States Senate from Rhode Island and served until his death in 1881. He was a good guy, but as one historian put it, he had been the most unfortunate commander of the army, a general who had been cursed by succeeding its most popular leader and a man who believed he was unfit for the post. His tenure had been marked by bitter animosity among his subordinates and a fearful, if not needless, sacrifice of life. A firm patriot, he lacked the power of personality and will to direct recalcitrant generals. The crater operation was just the kind of thing Burnside was good at. Complex strategic planning, as long as the execution was up to someone else. The tunnel excavation was in the best possible hands with Colonel Pleasance and his team of engineers. The initial blast did exactly what Burnside said it would do, blow a giant hole in the Confederate defenses and buy time for the Union by disorienting the enemy. The problem with Burnside, as always, was getting his subordinate commanders to stick to the plan and not be drunk at the time. And, not to criticize, but Ulysses S. Grant could have been way more supportive. In the end, the Battle of the Crater had come very close to ending the stalemate at Petersburg, and thereby the Civil War itself, almost a year before Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks that I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to break an entrenched military stalemate, or think that really big sideburns are an excellent personal grooming choice, you can Twitter to at History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we'll wade into Ernest Hemingway's complicated relationships with women and dig into his views on swimming pool construction. Not to be cliche, but it all started with his mother. Stay tuned for Ernest Hemingway's Last Penny. Support comes from the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News podcast. The host of the show is a holder of unpopular opinions on topics ranging from politics to health care to foreign policy to what foreign accent you should use when talking to your dog. When the news is on, he tends to rant. It scares the dogs, so his wife revoked his news-watching privileges. So he went and started this podcast. That'll teach her. Go to notalloweddtowatchthenews.com 
and find out what all the fuss is about.